Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 291 Questioning Frameworks of Practice. We're joined again by Buddhist teacher Ken McLeod to discuss the search for the truth, how to best question frameworks of authority, and the happy accidents that lead to real development on the path. This is part two of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Just bringing another dimension to this whole thing, I found that looking for truth, it also comes with it a kind of looking for uh, authority, looking for something or someone That's right. who's telling yeah. me how things are. And so that the approach then is to go, okay, this is how things are, and I've got to have faith in that. And it ends up becoming a factor, even if we're sort of validating, even if we're sort of testing as verified, there's still a quality of kind of, okay, I believe that this is true. I believe that you know kind of better than I do what's going on here. And then I'm going to try to kind of conform in some ways my experience to that so I can live up to it. So what's up with authority? You know, this is such a big question. Well, and not just in the spiritual realm. Sure. We have exactly the same relationship with science. And people give up the authority of their own experience to doctors and psychologists and things like that all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is going to make you feel better. Well, it doesn't. Well, just keep taking more of it, and it will. And, and they give it up, and sometimes the medication doesn't work. We've come to doubt our own experience in, in many, many ways. And I think there's a very important point that you're bringing up here. But let me throw this back at you. What leads you to take something as an authority? I guess there's several things, but one is, uh, do other people consider this person an authority? You know, that's definitely one thing I've considered. The other thing is, um, is there something inspirational about this person? Do, Do they seem to, do they seem to get something that I'm also interested in somehow? That's, I'd say another way that, uh, I've sort of tried to assess that in the past. I think those are two very important considerations. Uh, another consideration, I think, is uh, does this make sense to me? Does what he's saying make sense to me? And this is how we connect with a, a teacher in the, in the spiritual realm, but also in other realms, in academia and in, in the arts as well. This person embodies something that I want to know <laughs> yeah. or I want to be. And other people think well of him or her. And so we trust that. But now something very subtle happens, which we often don't notice. And that is, in our enthusiasm, it's very easy to seed our own agency. Yes. And, and we may not realize that we have. And now it moves from the domain of choice to the domain of belief. And if that has happened in a way that we aren't aware of it, 
then we feel that we have to do this and we don't know why. Okay, interesting. This is this is sort of making me think of a few different distinctions here. One is I hear someone describing, you know, the truth about whatever, enlightenment or awakening, and I go, okay, and then they tell me, okay, this is how you get there, and I just, I have really no way of knowing, so I just take that on faith, and I, and I go for it, uh, and I do what they say, and I completely let, let my agency over to this person or to this group of people. Um, but then there's a distinction between that and I would call it almost like a more rational, secular approach to this, which is, hey, this is what I've learned you can put these things to test. You can experiment, and you can see what they lead to. It's a way of like kind of nibbling on a little bit of the of, of what they're saying, and, and getting kind of like a sense for for that it's accurate. And, and there's more of a sense of um, validating it yourself. You know, trying to put the authority back to the person and saying, "Hey, run this experiment. If you get the same results, then you're on you're on the right path." Now that seems different, but it seems like what we're kind of exploring is something all, in some ways altogether different from both of those which is questioning the very framework to begin with that that's offered or that we're seeking out it's it's questioning in the motivation that drove us to get to the point where we said okay this is this is something i'm interested in and i want to go into it all three operate in all of us i think sure uh and and i think that uh in earlier times, uh, in traditional societies, certainly in the initial stage, you only had the first option. Uh, and, and that's because there was a notion in those cultures that there was a truth or there was a way of doing things that hadn't changed for a very long time. This is what you did. And you just learned it. And that was that. Yes. Now, there are very powerful uh, qualities to that way of learning. Is, is the learning tends to be very, very deep. I mean, it gets right into the body. I mean, this is how the old masters taught their students in painting. Painting, They would just, you know, wash these brushes, and, and they would say, this is how you do it. And they wouldn't allow them to do it any other way. And, and they, they learned how to apply uh, to canvas. They didn't experiment in a lot of stuff. They learned very, very specific ways. Uh, and they became very good. However, they were limited in, 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 in what they could do because they had only learned that one skill that one way highly, learned highly limited in a certain way right yeah, highly limited and highly learned <laughs> you know really fantastically yes and so as the realm of knowledge broadens then we want to have more of that experimental method that you described where there's a testing, and there's a testing of how does this work for me, etc. And that is characteristic of uh, a modern approach, where you, you find uh, learned subjects by your own exploration. And, and Ken, isn't it the case, though, with, the, with that approach? The, the thing I've noticed, about it, the, like, the, the tricky part of it is, it's like, okay, try this experiment, you know, see if it works for you, but then secretly... The subtext is, this is still the best way to do it. There's well, still that sense. I think there can be. Uh, I think I've been guilty of that myself in the past, to be honest. But I, I don't think that is a true 
expression of, of the experimental method. I, I'm thinking, did you see the movie uh, uh, Pia about Pia Bush that developed dance theater? Uh, amazing movie as far as I'm concerned, uh, especially if you can see it in 3D. It, it's, it's a bunch of her dance students recounting what it was like to study with her. And as a dance teacher, she was looking for how does this person express themselves in dance? Not, this, how, not to make them how, express how she expresses herself in dance, but what was the true expression for that person? And she's phenomenal. I, I, do, I was just so awestruck by what she was able to do has her students recounted it. And I found it deeply moving and inspiring movie. And, and that kind of consideration certainly influenced me, uh, you know, not just from Pia Bush, but from other things. Is I, I came to see teaching as, uh, and I certainly did this in my teacher's development program, is finding, not a, trying to get people to practice the way that I practiced or taught, teach the way that I taught, but what was true for them? What, what was congruent? What was the fullest expression? And this goes back to our definition of enlightenment. What cleared away the confusion? What abilities developed that allowed them to engage their life and their, and, and their practice in the fullest way? So I think, I think what you say is true. I think there can be a subtext, but that is a kind of false expression of that experimental exploration approach. I think when it's you do get teachers who are totally interested in bringing out whatever the potential is in the student. And they're, they're the really remarkable teachers, in, in, in my mind. But then you have this third category, which is questioning, what, what am I doing here at all? And uh, I think that is so important. And the reason I think it's so important is that I find and this, I think, is something that people should do on a fairly regular basis. I don't know how regular, maybe yearly, maybe every two or three years, I don't know, something like that. But I think it's very, very important because time and time again, I've run into people whose practice has gone flat. And it's gone flat because they have lost touch with their motivation. And sometimes it's because they've actually got out of their practice what they wanted and they're done. They may not be enlightened, but they got out of the practice what they were looking for. Uh, and other kinds, it's because they've lost touch with their motivation uh, by accepting somebody else's agenda. Yes. I, they lost touch yes. with their own agency. Uh, yes. Now, one of the challenges in uh, there, there are many challenges in here. One of the great qualities of the traditional approaches where you do this uh, and then do this, and then do this, is that you could put people through practices which were very arduous uh, and really demanding of people. And they might not get anything else out of it except that by pushing themselves to do that practice, they developed certain abilities. It's like, you know, they did push-ups for a while. They developed arm muscles. Uh, or they were like a musical uh, uh, student. Uh, they developed facility in scales and intervals and things like that. Uh, the Mr. Miyagi approach. Uh, yeah. Well, in a certain sense, that's right. Yeah. Uh, 
And one of the questions I have about teaching is when you do the exploration model, how do you inspire or get people to put the really, really hard work in to just developing basic abilities? Because it's boring, tedious work. Like uh, uh, the great shortstop for the uh, Baltimore Orioles. Anyway, he fielded a thousand balls every day. And you, you, you look at the star of basketball. Uh, the, I heard this account of this rookie uh, NBA player. And after practice was finished, he'd be out on the court. And he'd be shooting shots from one place on the court until he could sink the basket every time. And then he would move six inches to the left and shoot from there until he could sink baskets every time. And then he'd move six inches from that. And what he was doing was training in his body what each of them for every time and that's what I mean about the hard work well spiritual practice you have to put in the same kind of hard work of really uh, developing abilities and I think this is very important because there's so many facets of spiritual work and spiritual uh, spiritual insight that are dependent on having certain capacities of attention and awareness which are developed that way which you can't possibly understand intellectually. And I see people spending so much energy trying to understand them intellectually, but what they need to do, it, it's, it's analogous to uh, trying to understand how to lift a car rather than going out how to work weights until you have the capacity to lift a car. <laughs> okay, interesting. I've been sort of playing with this metaphor. I think it sort of connects to what you're saying of, um, of uh, being a programmer. Uh, as a programmer, you're you know you're working to create basically through instructions and code this thing that runs and does stuff. Uh, and I've been thinking about with a programmer, you know, as a programmer, you come in and you have all these different libraries of code that you have access to. You know, things people have already done that already do certain functions. And you can instead of having to recreate everything and build everything, you can borrow from these libraries and you can kind of include them and integrate them into your code. And I've been starting to think of, uh, you know, Buddhist practitioners as Buddhist programmers. You know, in some ways we're all having to kind of code this thing ourselves. And yet we do have this wonderful code base, this library that the traditions offer, you know, that if we could understand what that code does and find ways to kind of weave it into our own kind of creative process, that, that there's something really uh, great about having that as opposed to feeling like, okay, I've got to just go on my go off on my own and figure all of this out by myself um, and be the great, you know, amazing one. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, I think, I think what you're saying here is a very good, uh, good point. Uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, there are people who have put in long hours and learned how certain things work. But let, let's take your programming metaphor and extend it a bit. How many programmers program exactly the same way? Not that many that I know. I mean, maybe they're similar styles, but I mean, everyone seems to have a little bit of a difference in how they code and how they comment on their code. And I mean, it's, it's probably a whole big thing if you're a programmer, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, I would think so. And so I, I think that when you're embarking on a, uh, a spiritual path, uh, I think it's really important 
to be clear about one's intention. I uh, you know, what are you looking for? And that's likely to change in the course of, of time. Wherever you are at this point, what are you looking for? And then find the teachers uh, and the material which seem to offer or throw light on what you're looking for. Yes. Uh, and, and learn from them. And, and then one may work with uh, a teacher for you know, a number of years or whatever, and then uh, work with another teacher because one's motivation has changed. Or you may work with the same t- teacher but in a different way because what you're interested in has changed uh, as a result. Now, this was not always possible. Right. In earlier societies, because there were huge restrictions uh, from geography and culture and politics and things like that, where, uh, you know, you're in a valley in Tibet, it was difficult to get to the next valley. I mean, it's major, it would be a four, four or five day trek on, on yes. your own. And uh, for long periods, you know, you had Zen and Pure Land in Japan, you had Chinese Buddhism, you had Tibetan Buddhism, we had Southeast Asian. They didn't speak to each other because the geographic gaps, uh, distances were just so large. And it's only in the 20th century that they began actually to speak to each other. So, yes. So that, that's a consideration. But when you when you do find a teacher, you really still you still have the hard work of developing the actual capacities. Uh, and that can, and you can't just move to another teacher because you're going to have the same problem. You don't have the capacities. So, sooner or later, you're going to have to learn how to play scales. <laughs> okay, so, so just a question to build off of that. So, and this is something that it comes up a lot. Both when I start exploring this question with people, you know, what is what is what is it that's driving your practice, and what that you want? Um, it brings up this really difficult question, which is how do you differentiate or distinguish between the motivation that you're describing, which which is a lack of motivation or kind of a diminishment of motivation, uh, perhaps not being connected with the right approach at that at that time. Maybe we've gotten something from it and, and we're sort of with it for a while. Um, maybe we're just sort of ceding our authority to that versus this lack of motivation that seems to be a natural part of most any path of learning where there's highs and lows and there's sometimes really big lows where you kind of have to just keep playing the scales for a while until something kind of clicks. You have to keep staring at the numbers until the sort of how you do calculus just sort of clicks. I remember having that experience with calculus. It was like, <laughs> just like, ah, and I know you were, you were a mathematician, so yeah. <laughs> you probably yeah. had to deal with that a lot. Yeah. But, but when it went click, what was it, what was it like? Yeah, there was a sense of, of the whole world kind of changing and it not being really possible to to see things uh, the way I'd seen them before. Like now I suddenly, I kind of grokked how, the, how this thing worked. Yeah, I mean, and can you imagine what, what it was like for Newton and Leibniz? Because they were the people who came up with these concepts and, and, and broke this totally new ground. But I mean, they just opened up such a world that no one knew existed. Now now we can talk about, now we have a precise method for being able to calculate the volume of almost anything. Oh my God, what a difference. You know, and uh, so, 
Yeah, but that's exactly what it's like, is that you develop, the, and this is why I've been emphasizing the capacity thing. When you develop those capacities, it opens up whole new worlds, which I see m- many people trying to understand. But going back to your question, I think it's a really, yeah. really, I think it's a really difficult question. Um, and mm. my response to it is, part of the illusion that we uh, labor under in our society is that we actually have control over our life and our spiritual practice. And sometimes it's just happy accidents that take place. And the, the, there's the meeting the right person at the right time or some something happening. And there's not necessarily rhyme or reason. Uh, one person is slogging away at you know, something like that and experiences a breakthrough. Another person is slogging away at it and gives up and experiences a breakthrough. I mean, and there's stories of this. I mean, uh, there's, uh, Saraha was one of the great Mahasiddhas, and he was doing Vajrayogini meditation for years, like 12 years. Uh, this complex visualization, praying to this uh, very, very powerful uh, Yadam meditating on her. And after 12 years of this, he said, I'm not getting anywhere. And he threw his rosary down a to- an Indian toilet. <laughs> now, I mean, I mean, that's bad enough in our culture. You have no idea how over top this is in Indian culture. And he just, you know, he'd had it done, finished. Yep. And that night, he went and he slept. And he had a really good night's sleep for a change because he wasn't putting his ass at practice. <laughs> and when he was asleep, he had a dream. And in his dream, Vajrayogini appeared holding his rosary and saying, you have to keep trying. <laughs> and then gave, in the dream, gave him certain instructions. And Mm -hmm. everything changed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know. Interesting. So so it's it's I don't think there is any sure way of knowing. Uh, you know, sometimes we make the right decisions, sometimes we make the wrong decisions. Uh in my own work I've encouraged people to question and reappraise uh so that they don't stay locked in something that seems counterproductive. And in all honesty, Vince, I don't know whether I'm giving them good advice or not. I'm just giving them advice that sometimes I wish I had been given at certain points in my career, or I'm giving them stuff that I I found that has worked for me or has worked for certain kinds of people. And I think that's only what any teacher can do. And there is a huge amount of, uh, of luck in this. You know, sometimes you just run into conditions and kaboom, stuff opens up and you find the right teacher and you're filled with inspiration and you can just pour your energy into the work. And other times you get sick and it's just a slog and it's painful and that's how it is. And and so there isn't any right way for the path of practice to go. The path of practice is however it unfolds for you. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference. 
hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.